weeks. All right. Well, the first, the first view I'm going to start with, I'm going to call it the dualistic view or the dualist view, okay? And this is the most popular view uh, of what happens to man in the intermediate state. And it's, uh, and it's built on an understanding of the nature of man known as Cartesian dualism after Rene Descartes. Now, Descartes held, and again, he, he really followed Plato in this, but Descartes held that the immaterial mind and the material body are two completely different substances or entities that interact with one another. He reasoned that the body could be divided up by removing a leg or an arm, but the mind and soul are indivisible. And so man is composed of two separate, distinct parts. He's got a body and he's got a soul. Actually, in this view, man is a soul that possesses or has a body. And the soul is immortal. The soul is viewed to be immortal. And the body is viewed to be mortal. It is man's immortal soul that animates his body. Now keep that in mind because I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on when I talk about the second view. But in this first view, it's man's immortal soul that animates his body. Kind of like driving a car. I'm talking to you this evening, I, you, we're, you're here, we're laughing, we're talking, we're moving, whatever we're doing, we're being animated by our soul, uh, sort of like driving a car, and death is the soul leaving the body. So when the body dies, the soul is now free from the body, and it exists as a spirit, as a spirit soul, as opposed to a soul that is connected to a body. Now, those who hold this view of the nature of man say that the Bible collaborates this understanding, and, and there's various passages that are pointed to. Let me mention some of them, and again, some of this will be review if you were here back in the fall. You know, we talked about some of these verses. I've mentioned some of these in our conversations in the last three weeks, but some of the things that are appealed to would be Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 where the Bible says the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That's the King James most modern translations don't translate it like that anymore. But that was, that was for, for years, that was a verse that was referred to explaining that we have both, you know, we have a body made from the dust and we have a living soul that God gave us when he breathed into Adam or when we, in our case, when we were born. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says the dust will return to the earth. It's talking about death. Now it says the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And so there's a verse that folks say, well, hey, there's, a, there's a verse that points to dualism. It points to, this, to that we're a two-part being. We have a body and we have a, we have a soul, an immaterial, immortal soul. Our soul goes back to God. Our body goes to uh, the dust of the earth. Luke 23, 43, and again, remember last fall, uh, Jamie was here that night, and he goes, but what about this? And he talked about this particular verse, and it's the verse in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when Jesus is on the cross with the two men dying beside him. And you remember, he turns to one of them, and he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So if, if dualism is true, the, the me that's going to, the you that's going to be with me in paradise was his immortality soul. His soul would be with Jesus in paradise that day. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we spent a lot of time on it last Wednesday, but this is the verse where Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'll come back to it at the end if we have time because we'll, we'll talk back through that text, but if, you know, that's, a, that's a great dualistic verse. Okay? It seems to say, you know, just reading it on the surface, that, hey, I'm going to be absent from the body, What's absent from the body? Well, that's me. Who's me? That's in my immortal soul. And so where's my immortal soul? My immortal soul's with Jesus. So there's a verse that uh, dualists would say points to the existence of the soul. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. We haven't commented on this one, so I'm going to read it in its entirety. But in Revelation, John says he sees, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so, so people say, well, look, you know, there's the souls of those martyrs, and they are underneath the, uh, where does it say, they're underneath the altar? And uh, so there's, there they are. There's the souls of men. Their bodies have died. There's the souls of men in heaven with God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Probably one of the bigger ones is uh, one of the more important ones in, in this dualistic way of thinking would be Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. And, uh, you know, this is a real familiar passage. And, uh, well, I guess let me read it because we're going to have to talk about it twice tonight. We'll talk about it here and we'll talk about it at the end. But in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, I read, it says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus was laid at his grave covered with sores and longing to be fed from the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away to, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So again, there you can begin to see the idea of an eternal, immortal soul as opposed to a dead body. And uh, the poor man died, so he's, he's dead, but he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham uh, far away and Lazarus, Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm fixed. So those who wish to come over from where you, uh, from here to where you all will not be able, that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, did I read that right? Let me go back. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they, they will not come, uh, also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. All right. So what happens when we die under this Cartesian dualistic understanding of the nature of man? Well, Luke 16 is where most people appeal to to tell us what happens when we die. And uh, so what happens when we die? Prior to Jesus, when Old Testament men and women of faith died, they didn't go to heaven because Jesus hadn't atoned for them yet. But they were kept in a pleasant part of Sheol and Hades until the rec- resurrection of Jesus. So prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, all Old Testament saints, everybody prior to Jesus, they were kept in a part of Hades. Now you remember Hades and Sheol from our study last week. Sheol and Hades is the place of the dead. All right, That's what it simply means, the place where the dead are. And, uh, and so part of Sheol was divided into this compartment where Old Testament saints who believed in God went. After, de- after the death of Jesus, when, when he was set free from his body, in a dualistic way of thinking, he went to Hades and he preached to the Old Testament saints, taking them off to heaven, having redeemed them from their sin. And many folks would, would say Ephesians 4.8 alludes to this. Ephesians 4.8 says, therefore, it says, when he ascended, speaking about Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So people look at Ephesians 2.8, and they say, or excuse me, 4.8, and they say 4.8 is pointing to the time when Jesus went to Hades, and he liquidated this compartment that had all the godly people. Now, that, that compartment has been referred to as Abraham's bosom. I looked up the word bosom because I wasn't sure what it meant, and it simply means heart, okay? So Abraham's heart, um, or I guess breast, but, uh, but the, the things I saw said heart, not really breast. The two places were close enough, the, the place of the righteous and the place of the unrighteous in Hades, according to Luke 16, were close enough that you could see across them. There was a chasm that separated those two places. And, of course, based on the conversation between the rich man and Abraham, Abraham says, we can't go over to you, you can't come over to us, but we can talk. And uh, the rich man said, hey, send people back to my brothers because I'm in, you know, I'm in agony in this place. I'm being burned, right? So send, send somebody to my brothers to warn them. And Abraham said, Nope, no, if they don't, they don't believe the prophets, if they don't believe all the things that God has said, they're not going to believe somebody raised from the dead. And so, you know, we're not sending anyone. So from this story, the view, the view of the intermediate state for people who die without faith, who die without Christ, they are being tormented until final judgment. Now, if you affirm eternal conscious torment, I, I did a lot of reading on this, most people who affirm eternal conscious torment believe eternal conscious torment di- begins when you die. In other words, when you die, then you begin being tormented by the flames of fire. However, whatever you believe about that, right, the fire flames of Hades are not the fire flames of the lake of fire. Okay, we need to understand that, because I, I want you all to understand something here. You know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, these two views of hell, and we talked about eternal conscious torment, and we talked about conditionalism, where one of them is that God's going to torment everybody for, for all eternity, or God is going to kill or destroy or annihilate folks who, who die without Christ. 
you can hold to either of the two views of the intermediate state that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight. You can hold to both of them, either one of them, and hold to either one of the other two views as to what God does at the end. Everybody understand what I just said? Okay, so the, the fact that somebody is being tormented in the intermediate state, according to this story in, in Luke 16, does not preclude the idea necessarily that at the end, at the final judgment, that God will destroy sinners in the lake of fire and therefore they, and they'll be no more. In other words, you can be tormented in the intermediate state and not necessarily tormented in, in the final judgment. Everybody following that or am I confusing you all? I'm just trying to show you that these pieces, though, though I think some of them go together better than others, right? They, they don't have to. And so, you know, I've been involved with these discussions with these different theologians, and, and, and they're all over the board. In other words, some people embrace conditional immortality, but they believe that the intermediate state, the soul, is conscious, and that and unbelievers are most likely being tormented based on Luke 16. Okay? And then, of course, there's folks that, that would hold to the other view that I'm going to share with you in just a second. So, just to recap, the righteous who die are no longer taken to Abraham's bosom. Uh, they are instead taken straight to, to be with God in heaven and with the Lord Jesus. And the unrighteous who die are now being tormented in the intermediate state, awaiting the final judgment, which may be just a continuation of that torment or maybe a different torment altogether. But that's the dualistic view of the intermediate state. Okay? Everybody with you? With me? I mean, that's the kind of, that's what I, that's what I grew up on. That's what I believed all my life. That's what I just, I didn't know anything other than that. Yes, ma'am. Well, it's, it's uh, the question for those listening by podcast. The question is, um, how is it intermediate for those who are in heaven, right, when we're already with the Lord Jesus? And in that sense, you are right that it's not intermediate that we're going to be with Jesus, but it is intermediate in that you have no body. You're, you're in heaven as opposed to being on the earth, right, which is the promise of the New Testament is that we will be on this earth in resurrected body with Jesus as our king on this earth, right? So it's intermediate, at least even in that sense, right, it's intermediate that we are not in the final new heavens and new earth. We're, we're up in heaven uh, in a disembodied form waiting for the resurrection of Jesus at some point. So it's intermediate in that sense, okay? So it's really intermediate. It really is intermediate for, for both views. For, for in, in this Cartesian dualism, right, there, it is really intermediate for whether you're saved or lost. There is there's something going on in the intermediate state, okay? Now, some extra biblical evidence for this. And again, okay, let me say this. I almost hesitate to do this because of time and all, but, uh, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. You know, there is some extra biblical evidence for this whole idea of, of dualism, that I have an immortal soul that, that lives on past my death. Anybody want to tell me what you think it might be? What? Ghost. ghost. Okay. Yeah, basically ghost. In other words, post-mortem experiences by folks. Let me read you one. Natalie was hemorrhaging badly. She felt weak, cold, and pain in her abdomen was excruciating. 
Uh, a nurse ran out to fetch the doctor, but by the time he had arrived, she knew she was slipping away. The doctor was shouting instructions. When quite suddenly pain stopped, she felt free. She found herself floating above the drama, looking down at the bustle of activity around her, now, uh, her now still body. We've lost her, she heard the doctor say, but Natalie was already moving upwards into a tunnel of light, and she at first felt a pang of anxiety at leaving her husband and children, but it was soon overwhelmed by the film, feeling of profound peace, a feeling that it would all be okay. At the end of the tunnel, a figure of pure radiance was waiting with uh, arms wide open. Uh, of course, she obviously came back. Well, you know, people, there's, there's just literally thousands of people who profess to have such an experience. Not everybody has a positive one either. Some people have a, an experience post-mortem uh, post that, uh, that actually isn't positive, right? So there's those kind of experiences. So those are, they're extra biblical, Right? But they seem to support the idea that I have an immortal soul that lives on past my, my, the death of my body. Okay? Actually, the freeing of my soul from, from my body. Now, let me say something before I move on to the next view about what I just said. And that is that for those of us that follow Jesus and believe his word, the issue is never what we see in science or what we necessarily see and experience, but what does the word of God say? Now, that's not to say that, the, that our experience doesn't bear on our understanding of the word of God. Okay? I think it does. But, but ultimately, you know, it's the word of God that we must hold to and we must affirm regardless of what science or experience may, may dictate, okay? All right, now the second view that I want to share with you is uh, what's called the physicalist view. And uh, Christian physicalism is the view that our consciousness, our soul, is not an independent substance from our body, but rather our soul is emergent and dependent on our body and doesn't exist apart from our body being energized with life. And now, i got to tell you that so often what I'm going to share with you is characterized in a pejorative sort of way. Here's an example of just something I found on the Internet as, as I was studying. And I didn't even write down who wrote this, but I just thought it was indicative of lots of stuff I read. It says, surprisingly, there are Christians who deny the existence of the soul. That, that may come as a shock to you, I know it was for me, but they're really out there. They are a tiny minority, of course, but they do exist. These people are called Christian physicalists. They believe that people and animals are purely physical creatures with no immaterial aspect of their existence. They make an exception for God and perhaps for angels and demons, but humans, they are physical through and through. Now, unfortunately, this isn't exactly a, a true characterization of, of physicalism, all right? Instead, physicalism says that the soul or our conscious life does exist in the same way that a magnetic field exists around a magnet. My soul exists, okay? But just like a magnetic field, though it exists because of the magnet, it's something different than the magnet, in the same way, physicalist says, my soul, my consciousness, is something different than my body. But it is dependent on my body in the same way, you know, I mean, all illustrations fall short. But in the same way that a magnetic field is, is generated by a magnet, and it's different than the magnet, in the same way my soul is generated by my body, but it's different than my body. Now, in this view, it is the body that animates the soul 
or the inner, immaterial part of us. Now, I don't know if you remember one of the things I said at the beginning about the dualistic view. It is the soul that animates the body, according to dualism. According to physicalism, it's the other way around. It is the body with life that animates the, the soul. So if physicalism were true, then what happens in the intermediate state between death and resurrection? Well, you die. You die. You are dead. You are not conscious. You are not asleep. You and I would be, if physicalism were to be true, all of us would be dead. We would not be conscious. We would not be uh, sensate. We would not... Uh, we would not, all the things that dualism says, that, you know, you got the, the unrighteous suffering and you got the righteous enjoying bliss in heaven. If physicalism is true, that's not true. You, you are dead. So why believe the Bible teaches we are a holistic being who dies completely at death? Why, why not believe that we are made up of more than one part, okay? That we are two parts, but that, that are somehow independent from one another. Why, why would we believe that? So I'm going to give you four biblical reasons for physicalism, okay? And again, I, I may be not doing justice to dualism. Uh, if, I, if I'm not, it's only because that's what we all are. That's what we all were. That's, all what we, that's what we've always been, right, is dualism. So I kind of want to just challenge your thinking a little bit to tell you why a physicalist would say what he or she says about physicalism, okay? So, number one, uh, they would say this because of creation itself, because of creation. Most readers of the Bible are familiar with the creation of Adam in Genesis 2-7. He was created from the dust and brought to life with the breath of with God's breath, okay? That, that which was formed from the dust, even, even before being brought to life, God called it Adam. God called it man. Right at the outset, this is what we are. Humans are created, and it was from dust. And when animals were created, believe it or not, they were also created from dust. I had to look that up because I wasn't sure that was true, but it's true. In uh, Genesis chapter 2.19, you can look it up later, uh, God made animals from, from the dirt as well. But then God animates our lives. He gives us the breath of life. And there isn't this sense, I don't believe anyway, in the text that he is necessarily creating an immaterial soul that's separate from us, but rather he is giving us life. Let me continue. When God pronounces the sentence for sin, the weight of the judgment is this. You are dust. And to, and to dust you will return. You are dust, Adam, Eve. And to dust you will return. There's no qualifier added. There, there's not this idea, it seems to me anyway, in the text. And we might can read one in there, but there's no qualifier where, where God is, is somehow saying he's really not talking about Adam, and he's really not talking about Eve. He's really talking about their bodies, in other words, the way that reads doesn't, it, it's not, it doesn't, isn't meant to re be read like this. Your bodies are dust and they will go back to dust. But you, the real you, you will live forever immortally. You see, when God pronounces his judgment on Adam and Eve, he says, you are dust. And to dust you will return. So it's, it's almost like he, he's not qualifying it to say, your bodies are going to go back to dust, but you yourselves, you're going to live on immortally in my heaven or in my hell. You're going to live in one of those two places. He, he, that's not what he says. Then the, let's go on. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us 
in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he pronounces death on Adam and then he removes the tree of life so that he won't live forever. So that he and Eve will die. Now Glenn Peoples, who's an Australian uh, theologian, he this is how he, he muses or reflects on this issue. He says, their life comes to an end when they die, and they do not survive in another form, as though the real issue in Genesis was living one way in Edom, I mean, in Eden in a bodily form versus living in another way outside of Eden and then on after the demise of the body in a disembodied state. Humans, human beings are mortal. Now, certainly, their lives changed. After, after the fall of man, their lives changed. For instance, work changed, didn't it? Childbearing changed. There was a number of things that God pronounced on, on them that were life changed. But, but his, his real pronouncement on them was that their life would actually come to an end. That, that it would end. Life is lost to death. And throughout the Scripture, and I've already made this point before, but throughout the Scripture, uh, the hope of immortality, of living and not dying again, is bound up with God's plan of salvation. It, that, that's, where, that's where we find life. That's where we find eternal life. That's where we find resurrection, being revealed fully through the gospel and the resurrection of the dead, made possible through Christ. It is through the gospel that God has brought life and immortality to light. That's a quote from 2 Timothy 1.10. If dualism is correct, then the real true person is your soul. Then the death of the body means nothing. Think about it, okay? If dualism is correct, the, the, and you are the real, your, your soul is the real true person that exists, then death of the body means nothing. To, to theorize that all people survive death, since the soul is the real you, is really just to deny the reality of death in the biblical story. In other words, the story of death means nothing, because that's not the real you. The real you is your immortal soul. So death actually means nothing. It, it, is, it is not, it, here's, here's an illustration, it's not as though we are all players in the game of earthly life, like players in a game of soccer, where we've been penalized and we're told to take off our uniforms and go hit the showers, still living, but, but no longer in the game of life here, but rather going on and doing whatever we want to do or whatever we're going to do uh, in the future. It, death doesn't seem to be that in the things that God told Adam and Eve. We were declared mortal by God as a penalty of sin, and to talk of us going on when our bodies die is to simply not take our mortality seriously. Now, everybody following me? I'm trying to build a case for, for, in physicalism. Why, why would we say that we're not two parts? And the first one is the creation itself. What God said about us in creation, that we would die. Now, to, you know, all my life I've thought that hey, I'm an immortal being, and, and, and nothing can kill me, right? I can, I'm either going to be tormented in hell, or I'm going to live in bliss with God in heaven. Okay, that's what I've always thought. But, but the idea that I am mortal, truly mortal, and that I, I either only, ha all I have is this to live, right? 
That that can be kind of frightening. It may be frightening to think of our life as a vapor or ourselves like grass of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But that's exactly how the Scripture talks about us. For instance, James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How about Psalm 39, 5? Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. A minute ago, I read you the passage from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12. 12, I think it was, where the duelist, 12, 7, where the duelist says, here's a verse that speaks to our immortality. And it was the verse, I'll read it again. It says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. I, actually, I think that's a verse that better supports the idea of physicalism. Let me tell you why. Because Ecclesiastes 12, 7 is the undoing of what God did when he gave life in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it says God created us out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed breath into us. It says he breathed breath into us, and we became a living being. Actually, in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, when it translates the word spirit there, it could just as correctly have translated it breath, the same way it's translated in the Genesis passage. So the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the breath will return the breath of the person will return to God who gave it. Really, Ecclesiastes 12.7 seems to be talking about the dissolution of the body, not the continuance on of, of, of some immortal part of us. The body goes back to dust, the breath returns to God who gave it, and, and that's the dissolution of life. And then it's the words that God uses in creation uh, for us. The word, the, the main word is nefesh. You'll remember that I um, read you earlier the verse in Genesis. I'm not going to try to go there, but it says, and God breathed life into him and he became a living soul, right? And I told you that that word is not often used in modern translations. The word is nefesh. The word nefesh, which is so often translated soul in our Bibles, that doesn't refer to the immaterial part of us. That doesn't mean that we don't have one. But all those words that are translated soul, the word nephesh really refers to you as an entire being, a physical being, and uh, that, that would include your, your immaterial part as well. Okay? So, all right, so I said there's four things. The first one was because of creation. But a physicalist would, would also point to the contrast that we see in the Bible. And the contrast is between God as spirit and man as flesh. Psalm 78, verse 38 says, Let, Yet he was compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all his wrath. He remembered that they were only flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows that we are what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field, and when the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful, faithful love is towards those who fear him and his righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing. Yes, every human being stands only as a vapor, selah. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gaining possessions without knowing who will get them. 
Psalm 144, verse 3 and 4, the Lord, what is a human that you care for him, a son of man that you think of him? A human is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Now, here's what I want you to hear as I read those verses. God treats people, the person, you and me, as just a passing wind. He says a vapor. He calls us grass and a flower that's here this moment and gone very quickly. We are nothing but, according to these words, dust in the wind. Isaiah says something. He says, stop trusting. This is Isaiah 2.22. Stop trusting. He's put no more trust in a mere human who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? He says, you know, we're nothing but a breath, he says. But here's the point. If the true us is a spirit and we live in a body and merely inhabit a body that, as the ones that's been described here, then the distinction between God as a spirit and us as flesh, it, it, really, it really becomes a meaningless one. It's a meaningless comparison. If we're spirit and God is spirit, then when God says we are flesh but he is spirit, you know, it's, it's hey, it's really, he's, he's a big spirit and we're a little spirit. He, he's the all creator spirit. We're, we're just little spirits that, that he has created. But that's not what God says. God compares us and he says we are but flesh. And we are smoke, dust, mere breath in our nostrils. If that's not the case and we're spirit that lives on immortally, then his whole comparison seems to lose its force. Number three, because of the description. And, and in this case, I'm going to talk about the description of the intermediate state in the Bible. It's often said by folks, especially dualists, that there is very little said about the state of the dead, the intermediate state in our Bibles. It's also been said, if you'll remember back when we did our study on hell, that there's very little in the Old Testament about hell as well, and I agreed with that. However, I did say, if you ask the question, what does the Bible say about hell in the Old Testament? I mean, what does the Bible say about final punishment in the, in the Old Testament? It has an awful lot to say there, but it doesn't talk about hell, eternal conscious torment, or hell as eternal conscious torment in the Old Testament. Now, the reason, when, when people say the Bible doesn't say much about the intermediate state, the, the implication is there's an awful lot more that could be said, that people, that the writers of the New Testament could have said more. God could have revealed all kinds of things about what's going to happen in the intermediate state. But, but what if, what if the Bible does tell us what's going to happen in the intermediate state, okay? What, what if we're looking for something in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about the intermediate state based on what we think we should find there? What if that's the case, and that's the reason why we don't find much about the intermediate state? What if the, the Bible does actually tell us quite a bit about the intermediate state, or it tells us what we need to know about the intermediate state? And that, that's what I'm going to suggest to you. Okay, and I realize that there are passages of the Bible that seem to point to this idea of, of an intermediate state with a dualistic approach to, to who we are, right? We're immortal, and we're going to either be in suffering or we're going to be with the Lord. But I believe the Bible actually paints a picture for us of, of death. And then we've already seen that creatures of the earth made from physical matter and possessing the breath of life we return to the earth when our breath leaves us. Whether we're an animal or whether we're a human, 
our, our body at least, but again, I, I want to draw you back to my first point. The Bible never draws this distinction between me and my body. It's always me. I am the person who returns to the dust. Okay? So, so in the scripture, what does it say about the intermediate state? Well, let's take Daniel, for instance. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, many of you probably know this verse, but Daniel is looking forward to a day when people are going to rise from the dead. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So he says people are going to wake up. They're going to wake up. Now, where are they now? According to Daniel, they're sleeping. Where are they sleeping? They're sleeping in the dust of the earth. Now, let's see. Notice that the text doesn't say that people are somewhere else alive out there and, and then return to the dust. It says they're sleeping in the dust, and they're going to rise from the dust. Beyond these, there are a number of occasions when the biblical writers refer to the intermediate time, those who have died, throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, refers to them as being asleep. For instance, in the Old Testament, the, the, there's a really um, common phrase, he slept with his fathers. And there are over 66 times in your Bible where speaking about the dead... God says they are asleep, okay? He uses the euphemism sleep to represent what's happening to people when they die. Uh, we have Moses in Deuteronomy 31, 16, David in 2 Samuel 7, Omri, 1 Kings 16, and there's a whole lot more talking about these guys sleeping with their fathers, and then again, all those verses in the New Testament that speak of death as sleep. Now, if this was just a figure of speech that was used by a few authors, we might could say, well, it's a euphemism, you know, just for the body. But it's never talking about the body being asleep. It's always talking about you and me. It's always some of the person being asleep. Now, surely there must be some point to using sleep as a description for death. And I believe there is. Here it is. This is what I think anyway. Or if, if I was a physicalist, this is what I would think. I'm not sure if I'm there yet or not although I'm heavily leaning this way. You know, like in sleep, the dead are not conscious. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty conscious when I'm sleeping. I mean, I wake up and I've realized I've had a gazillion dreams throughout the night and stuff. So I know there's some consciousness going on, even if I can't recognize it. But generally, we say when we're asleep that we're unconscious. We, we, don't, we don't have a consciousness about us. So I believe the reason why the biblical writers use sleep to describe death is because in death, like when we're asleep, there, there is no consciousness. Uh, we don't do anything. So let me give you, does the Bible bear that out? Listen, Psalm 6, 5. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Psalm 115, verse 7. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any go down into silence, nor do any who go down into silence. But, but we, the living, will bless the Lord. Isaiah 38, 17 through 19. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Now notice that Sheol and death are used synonymously there. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his son about your faithfulness. 
And then Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Psalm 49, verse 14 through 15, Like sheep, they, the wicked, are appointed to she for Sheol, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. I guess that could be a, a dualistic verse, right? That could, that could be a verse that lends itself to dualism or to, uh, or to physicalism. Now, some say that the soul is literally asleep. You've probably heard the, the term soul sleep before, right? Uh, you know, I don't believe the soul is asleep. I believe the soul, in physicalism anyway, the, the Bible would teach that the soul is dead because the body is dead. Death has taken place. The penalty of sin has, has had its effect on, on the person who's died, and they have died, and they are without the breath of life. They are no longer conscience, conscious. So sleep is used as a euphemism for death because we're not conscious and because we will wake up from death. All of us will. But the soul is not literally asleep. Now, I've said this before about all the stuff we've been talking about. Not, nobody is monolithic, right? If you're an eternal conscious torment person, I mean, there's a whole variety of what people think there. And the same thing over here with, with physicalism. There's a variety of what people think and all. But generally, you know, the soul is not said to be asleep. I mean, that's the euphemism that's used in the Bible. But it's because, and here's the suggestion anyway, it's because sleep represents the fact that people in death are unconscious, they're not conscious, and they will wake up. They will wake up from death. It is true that the biblical writers point to, in the Bible, this idea that we have eternal life, that we have passed from death into life, right? We hear that quite often in the Bible. But it's also clear that those same writers had this not yet idea about that. Let me give you an illustration. Jesus says, uh, saying, he said, you will have everlasting life. But in the next breath, he goes on to explain, this is in John chapter 6, verse 40, he goes on to say, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God is, God is equating eternal life with raising him up on the last day. Likewise, Paul, when he speaks of we have redemption through the shed blood of Christ, Genesis, I mean, Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, he also states equally the redemption we have is still future. Okay, I've been redeemed by Christ, but there's a sense in which my, my redemption is future and the Holy Spirit has been given to me today as a pledge that my redemption is coming, that it has been purchased, but it isn't actually here yet. The same thing is true with adoption. We have been given the spirit of adoption, uh, Romans 8.15, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. But yet at the same time, in Romans 8.23, the Bible tells us that Jesus, who has the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that was also in the Ephesians 2 passage that we studied not too long ago on a Sunday morning, that even though it says I've been adopted, my adoption is not final until the resurrection of Christ, and until, excuse me, until my own resurrection at the second coming of Christ. 
These things like eternal life, redemption, adoption, they're guaranteed. They're ours. We have the Holy Spirit as a seal that those things belong to me. But there's also a very, very, very clear sense in the Bible that they, they have not been realized yet, but will be realized at the return of Christ and at the resurrection, uh, our resurrection at the return of Christ. All right, I have, uh, I have one more for you. And, and to me, this one's huge. Uh, I, I don't. I guess there's an answer for it, but this is a really big one, and it's because of the resurrection. And I made this point last week, as I read through all those scriptures, that the hope of the New Testament writer is the resurrection. And even if the New Testament writers are pointing us to an intermediate time in heaven, that is never their goal. It is never their priority. It is never what they're putting their hope in. Their hope is always in the resurrection of Christ. And you just go back and listen to the CD and, and, or, or to the podcast and write down the verses and you look them up for yourself. They, they are, you know, except for the exception of a couple of them, and we talked about them, they are, they, their hope is in the resurrection. Paul says, I seek and hope to obtain, not to heaven, but to the resurrection from the dead. So that's everyone's hope, regardless of, uh, even if there is an intermediate state in heaven, and that's what Paul believes he's going to do, he never talks about that. He's always talking about the resurrection at the end of time, okay? So, instead of the resurrection, instead, it is the resurrection they hope, hope and why? And here, here's what I'm going to suggest, that because without resurrection, if death is death, there is no hope. All right, so this is huge to me personally, okay? As, I have, as I've stepped back and tried to evaluate the Scriptures, evaluate the, what the whole Word of God says, this one is a really big one for me, okay? Because as I read my Bible, that's what all the writers are pointing to, is the resurrection. If physicalism is true and death is death, then you do not have any hope. If Christ doesn't raise you from the dead, when you die, you die, and that's the end of you. But if Christ is indeed risen from the dead, and if Christ indeed raises us from the dead, then we shall have life again. We shall live. And not only would we rise to have life, Jesus says, I'm going to raise you to have eternal life. I'm going to raise you so that you will no longer suffer corruption. I'm going to raise you so you'll no longer have to deal with sickness and sin and all of that because I'm going to give you a new life. And, and I've, I've actually taken on your life just like you have it. I've taken on it so I can be with you uh, forever. So let's look at the text. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 15. So what does Paul say? Remember, the 1 Corinthians 15 is all about resurrection. And I didn't talk about this last week. I saved it for this week. But uh, because really last week I was just trying to make the case that the writers are all pointing to resurrection and not to an intermediate heaven. So, but what does Paul say in, the, in that text? We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 and following. So 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? I decided to start on that verse because Sue brought it up the other night, and I didn't want to be a coward and not address it tonight, okay? So I'm going to address it, although it's really not germane to my argument. What, what does that mean? Well, here, here's, what, here's what everyone agrees. It's, it's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to figure out what, what that actually means, okay? What, uh, but, but what most everybody does agree with is that the, 
the simple reading of that verse, the way it sounds, like the people were being baptized for people who had died, that, that seems to be what Paul was saying. Okay? What does he mean by that? Well, um, one of the things that people say is that in, in that statement, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptizing for them? The people that are doing the baptizing in the, in the Greek, in the Greek, he doesn't use the word we, he uses the word they. So some people say it's pagans that are doing this. It's not Christians at all. That, that pagans are baptizing for the dead. So why are they doing that if, if the dead are not raised? Others have said it's the Corinthian church doing this, okay? And Paul, you know, and, and they're just vicariously baptizing people for f folks that have already died. Either way, either way, people suggest that what Paul is saying is, why do you do that? If the dead are not raised, because remember, that's what people are claiming, that, the dead, that dead people are not going to be raised. We talked about this. Most likely it's because of the platonic dualism of that day and everybody believing that, you know, to be free from the body is, you know, the body's a prison. We want to be free from it. We want to go back up into a spiritual realm. And so people are saying, well, you know, we don't need a resurrection. What, what's the point of a resurrection anyway? And so they're saying no, people aren't going to be raised. And Paul was probably addressing that. So he says, why are you baptizing if people aren't going to be raised? Uh, either way, everybody says this is not a scriptural practice, and Paul is not commending it. He's just merely saying, why are you doing that if people aren't raised from the dead? Best I can do, Sue. It's a hard passage, all right? But let's look at verse 30. Here, here's where it gets really interesting, I think. Verse 30, Paul says, why are we also in danger every hour? In other words, if the dead are not raised, why, why am I subjecting myself to danger? Verse 31, I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I die daily. In other words, I'm telling you guys, I, I'm, I'm, my life's on the line every single day. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts in, Eph in Ephesus, what does it profit me? In other words, if I, if I did this for something here, how am I profiting for this? And then he makes a statement. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now follow his train of thought. Follow what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, why am I subjecting myself to death if the dead are not raised? And then he makes this, this concluding statement. He says, if the dead are not raised, I might as well just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, if, if dualism is true, and Paul believed it, I mean, there's a great answer to what Paul just said. Paul, why would you do that? Because you still have heaven. You're still going to heaven, right? You still, have, you still have all of heaven. Why would you say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Because really, what's on the other side of death is, is heaven for you. And, um, but that's not what he says. He says, and Paul's argument presupposes that if there is no bodily resurrection, then we might as well just live for now, because there's nothing tomorrow. If there is no bodily resurrection, that seems to be what his argument is pretty clearly. His argument works only if and only we do not, if and only we do not survive death in any way until the resurrection of, of, of the dead. In other words, if, if I continue to survive after death, there's a great reason to continue to live for Christ and to live for God. But if, if, if life doesn't continue until God raises, if, if life isn't, 
If life isn't going to be until God raises me from the dead, and now you're telling me that God's not going to raise me from the dead, his argument is, then you might as well take advantage of your 80 years here in our culture. Back then it may have been 50. You might as well take advantage of whatever years you got and just do whatever you want because that's the end of you when you die. That seems to be his argument in this passage. William Tyndale, just so you know, everyone, that you know this is... This is not, there have been church fathers throughout the ages that have affirmed both of these understandings of what happens, you know, in the intermediate state. William Tyndale, who translated the English Bible, he was a martyr, one of the, one of the martyrs when, when the press came out. He translated the Bible. They say that William Tyndale's translation of the New Testament is one of the best there is. And I'm saying that just to add clout to what he said. But he and, uh, he and a fellow by the name of Thomas More got into a discussion on this issue of the soul's immortality. And I'm going to read you this because it's kind of comical. But uh, they, were, they were exchanging these, art, these, exchanging these writing pieces between one another. And uh, William Tyndale wrote to Thomas More, and he wrote sarcastically as though he was rebuking the Apostle Paul. He says, no, Paul, you are unlearned. Go to Master Thomas More and learn a new way. We will not be most miserable, though we don't rise again. For our souls go to heaven as soon as we die, and we are in great joy as Christ, uh, as Christ who is risen again. And I had to try to put that in some more contemporary English because it was so hard to follow in, in the English of all. My point was simply that, boy, this has been, these, these have been differences for a long, long time. But I think Paul's argument is pretty clear. Now, is there any extra biblical evidence for physicalism? And I, and I, would, say, I would say just like there is on the other side, there is on this side. And in fact, if, if you know the thing I put up there to start with where the guy said, hey, read deeper than you are so that you can challenge your thinking, that sort of thing, that, that guy, actually he, is, he would be a dualist that talk. I mean, there's lots of stuff out there you can go and listen to if you're interested in this at all. But he was making a case for dualism, and he was using neuro, neuro um, all the stuff to do with your brain, right, to, to make the case. But uh, he was saying in, in that video as he goes on, he talks about how neurologists and neuroscientists, I think they're called, you know, they're all saying basically what I'm going to tell you right here and that is that more and more we're finding that our consciousness is dependent on our physical brain. And uh, let me just read you. Here's Stephen Cave, and I'm going to read. He says, the case runs like this. With modern brain imaging technology, we can now see how specific localized brain injuries damage or even destroy aspects of a person's mental life. These are the sorts of dysfunctions that Oliver Sacks brought to the world in his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. The man of the title story was a lucid, intelligent music teacher who had lost the ability to recognize faces and other familiar objects due to damage to his visual cortex. Since then, countless examples of such dysfunction have been documented to the point that every part of the mind can now be seen to fail when some part of the brain fails. The neuroscientist Antonio DiMaggio has studied many such cases. He records a stroke victim, for, for example, who had lost any capacity for emotions, patients who lost all creativity following a brain injury, others who lost the ability to make decisions. One man had a brain tumor, lost uh, what we might call his moral character, becoming irresponsible and disregarding of of social norms. I saw something similar in my own father who also had a brain tumor. It caused profound changes in his personality and, capability and capacities before it eventually 
killed him. So the argument flows like this. If the soul is independent of the brain, a separate entity, how come functions of the soul, like personality and like reason, not to mention like vision and hearing, you know, how can these drastically change when just a small area of the brain is affected? And, and so modern, modern science would say, you know, more and more we don't have the need for the soul because all those things that we, that we talk about the soul being our personality, the way we think, that kind of thing, our consciousness, there, you know, it can be attributed to many of the things that are going on within our brain. So, so folks would point in that way to science speaking to, to physicalism. All right, those are, those are my notes on the, on, the two, on the two views of the intermediate state. Were you all able to follow that? Man, I don't say you agree with you. I just want to know, were you able to follow what I was saying and all? Okay. Because if, if this is new to you, I remember I, the first time I began to listen to this, I had to listen to it over and over and over again to understand you know, what the brother was saying. And, I, and I've been listening for a long time. One of the things you're going to ask me about is Scripture. And I've got a few minutes. So let's, let's just look at some of the Scriptures, that a, how a physicalist would see some of those Scriptures. And I've said this before. Let me make this comment also. That... There will always be scriptures that will, will point, that, that, that will seem to lend themselves to one view over another. It kind of goes back to, remember that we've been talking about the duck and the rabbit? So we have a great portion of the church is Calvinistic, and they, and they see soteriology from a Calvinistic perspective. And then we got others who don't. They, they see it from a non-Calvinist perspective. And, and yet they're looking at the same scripture. And, and some people are saying, well, these scriptures point this way, and, and these guys say they, these point this way, and some guys see a duck and some see a rabbit. Well, it's true in all of this, okay? And it's true in the stuff that I'm talking, about, to, talking to you about now. So, again, I, I'm, I may not speak to a scripture that satisfactorily, you know, that, that answers your question satisfactorily about, about this. So that doesn't teach physicalism or whatever. And maybe not. But, but I do want to give you an example of how physicalism might deal with some of the scriptures that you would pull up and say, hey, but what about this verse? All right, so let's start with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We already talked about this where it says, And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living nefesh. We already talked about that one uh, pretty much. Nefesh means living creature. And it, and it had the idea of the whole being, not this immaterial soul, even though the word it's translated soul in, in the King James. It's not translated that way in any other translations. The newer translations have all gotten away from that because it's, it's not the idea of my immortal soul. It's the idea of my being. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Well, that passage, we already talked about this as well, but the spirit could be breath, you know, the same word there. And so that verse could easily mean the dissolution of man's life, not the continuance of an immortal soul in heaven. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the breath will return and a man's breath will return to God who gave it. Luke 23, verse 43, and here's, here's a biggie. And he said to him, Jesus said to the man dying on the cross before him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Again, now maybe these things won't satisfy you, but I'm going to tell you how a physicalist will deal with that verse. All right, one, he will deal with it really in one of two ways. He actually has two ways of dealing with the verse. One of them is to say that Jesus is speaking pastorally to the thief on the cross. In other words, as far as the thief is, is concerned, if, when he dies, uh, he dies, right? And so the very, the very moment he dies is the very moment he wakes up in the presence of God. 
The very moment he dies is the very moment that he wakes up in the presence of God at the judgment of God. Think about it for just a moment. I've used this illustration with my wife anyway and others personally, but if you've ever been under anesthesia, this is such a great, uh, a great picture of this. And with anesthesia, you count backwards, you know, 10, 9, 8, you wake up, right? It's instantaneous. You've been asleep for three hours but in surgery, but as far as you're concerned, it's 10, 9, 8, you're waking up. And, and so it could be that Jesus is speaking pastorally to him. And so instead of trying to explain things to him, he just says, man, today... When you awaken, you will, you will awaken my presence in, you know, in judgment. That's a pastorly way of looking at it. And I mean, I can accept that. But to me, to me a, more, a better way maybe would be to say that Jesus said, and again, it's going to depend on where you put the comma, and he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Okay? Now, I keep using the word okay, I got to stop that. So, you say, well, wait a minute, why would he say that? Truly, truly, uh, why would he say, truly, I say to you today? We all know he's in the day. Why would he say that? Well, actually, Jesus said things kind of like that a lot. Verily, verily, I say to you. And he would, he would use these statements. He said that, truly, truly, I say to you 19 times, uh, recorded for us in the Gospels. But, but I think he could have been putting emphasis on looking at the guy and saying, hey, today, I'm telling you, you're going to be with me in paradise. And that is, a, and believe it or not, both, both looking at the, the Greek, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar, I just read, I just read, okay? And one of the things that is true is that verse can be read either way. You have to choose. So your precepts are really going to determine how you're going to read that verse. If you're a dualist, you're going to say, truly I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. If you're a physicalist, you're going to say, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. You follow me? So it can be read either way. And I will say one thing. There's one manuscript. You know Greek manuscripts don't have, uh, they don't have punctuation in them. <laughs> there, is one, there is one manuscript with punctuation and, and, the comma, and the comma comes after today, not before. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Now, this is the passage we spent quite a bit of time on last week. And, and that was the one where, where Jesus, in fact, maybe we need to read that one. Let me pull that one up. Corinthians chapter uh, 5. For we know that we have, if the tent that our earthly home is destroyed, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened, being burdened. I'm sorry, I lost my, my phone was ringing. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So again, there's that whole concept of we have the Spirit waiting for the time when, when our, my mortal life is swallowed up in immortality. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we walk by, we walk by faith and not by sight, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
And so again, if you're a dualist, uh, you know, be away from the body is speaking about my immortal soul. And, and to be home would be in heaven. If you're a physicalist, you would point to the fact that twice in the text, he says, I'm not talking about being naked. I'm not talking about being unclothed. I'm not talking about not having a body. And so what you would say is, when you get to verse 7, is that for we have good courage, uh, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we have good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You're, re- you're looking for you know, the, um, you're, you're looking for the eternal resurrected body that God's going to give you, the immortal one, the building that he's creating for us and he calls being created in heaven, talking about our immortal bodies. And so you're, you would say that Paul is not looking to heaven and to an, a disembodied state. You're saying he's looking to being at home with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, that might not be satisfactory, but that's how a physicalist would understand that verse.